Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I'm your host, Liv. She has developed a, a real love of looking at like the cultural history of ancient Greek mythology, what it meant for real people, just how it's so vastly different from what we often think of now. Like, gods, um, the way this show has changed, the way I see myth. It's wild, and then I just get to share it all with you, slash inflicted upon you. Who's to say? But the absolute best example of this concept is Heracles. But, real quick, before we get to him, if you're listening on Spotify, make sure you interact at the end of the episode. I'm adding in some fun, like, Q&As and polls to new episodes to play around with this new feature and hear what you think and just get your thoughts on any and everything. And then your questions get published so that they show up right on the Spotify page. It's pretty fun and cute. So join in. Heracles, Heracles, Heracles. <laughs> Last week, we looked at the woman hidden behind the hero, Heracles' mother, Alcmene, who doesn't get nearly enough credit for her own mythology. 
but today. Well, Alcmene is she's kind of left behind in Heracles' story. You know, surprise, surprise. Without him, well, she doesn't really get much else of her own. But her son, well, he was, you know, a little bit interesting. For the most part, unsurprisingly, stories of the heroes aren't, you know, my favorite bits about Greek myth, save, I guess, for like the Odyssey and the Iliad. But Heracles is different, not for his character, really, or even for the stories themselves, but for just every single thing else to do with him as this piece of cultural history, cultural identity, even. Heracles is unique. He's completely different from the rest of the Greek heroes, and that alone makes him someone that, like, I want to examine in far more detail, clearly. He was Greece's hero, like, devoted to and beloved by the whole of the ancient Greek world in a way that just does not exist with others. That is what makes him so interesting. That, and he's got about, like, ten times more stories than anyone else and like, a thousand-plus years of those stories growing and changing, not quite surviving, like existing in fragments and visual representation and concepts. So purely for my own selfish needing content reasons and having a ridiculously expensive book I want to use, <laughs> we're going to dive a little deeper into him as a character, him as an archetype, as a hero for all of Greece and all of its mythology and what all of those things mean from like a cultural and historical context. Because gods, they meant so much. There's a reason why Theseus was intentionally mirroring Heracles in his story. And it isn't because the guy looked up to his cousin. It's because if you're going to make a hero that's like intentionally Athenian propaganda like Theseus, you want him to emulate to, to be as similar as possible to the number one hero for all of Greece, Heracles. And hey, you know, like, why not add in a little familial relation to, you know, just for good measure? But fortunately for us, while I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that Heracles is, is much less problematic or, or even committed, you know, any fewer crimes compared to Theseus, he is, well, like, he's just considerably less obnoxious. And thus, I'm not going to spend entire episodes talking about just how shitty he was because, you know, for all his crimes, Heracles at least defeated a bunch of seriously interesting and scary creatures along with, you know, all the other wild and fascinating things that he did in his ridiculously prolific, heroic career. This is episode 229, Nobody Labors Like Heracles, the cultural history of the Pan-Hellenic hero. What we do and do not know about Heracles and the many stories from myth that involve him well, gods, it spanned about a millennial's worth of culture, of, of history, of Greece, and well, well beyond. And so, you know, it's a little bit uh, fragmentary. Because remember, Heracles is, you know, the Greek name for Hercules. His, that's, Heracles is his original name, even if the Roman Hercules became far more famous. Heracles survives in our earliest sources for Greek myth, and while that's true of a lot of the heroes, he still manages to differentiate himself from the others. He's a regional hero, but simultaneously he is the hero for all of Greece. He is Theban, and also Peloponnesian, and he is everything in between and beyond. But he's also this deeply, fascinatingly fragmentary hero. The details of Heracles' childhood are few and far between, at least when it comes to earlier sources. Until Pseudo-Apollodorus and some others writing while Greece is being ruled by the Roman Empire, so a good eight or so, you know, hundred years after a source like Homer, you know, until that time, we have little about Heracles' childhood beyond some visual representations. Meanwhile, when Apollodorus does come along, he adds in all these details which, 
well, that's the nature of a character like this. The details and stories offered by Pseudo Apollodorus might have been well known before his time. And it's maybe only that he survives to tell us about them. Or these details might have been later additions and inventions, like elaborations even. Unlike many of the other major heroes, Heracles didn't lose any of his fame or popularity, even after a good, you know, thousand years of mythology and history had passed. The Romans took him on in a way that they did not bother with the others. He became immortal in a completely different way. And as a reminder, you know, he's the only traditional hero who became explicitly immortal, an actual god in the mythology. Before the time of Pseudo-Apollodorus, though, we know of Heracles' mother, you know, everything I shared with you last week, and we know that as a baby, well, you know, he strangled a couple of snakes, basically confirming to everyone around him that he was going to be a totally normal child. <laughs> you know, might be destined for some impressive things, though. But aside from that, there is little in the way of detail. Like, there's a piece of pottery from the late 6th century that depicts Heracles wandering off with Hermes. You know, heading towards Chiron, we assume, um, for his hero training, I guess. Yes, think Danny DeVito. Um, There is no other way to see the hero training than Danny DeVito as Phil in Disney's Hercules. A character who is a beautiful little amalgamation of real mythological characters. Chiron and Philoctetes, but smushed into a satyr. Okay, I'll stop. So so we think maybe that's what Heracles did as a child. Maybe his parents knew what they had with him, you know, after the whole snake incident, and they sent him off to train as this hero. But, well, that that's like, that's a bit of a later construct, too, that there was any kind of hero training available. So maybe it was just that one painter who wanted that bit of his story to exist, Or there's the time he accidentally killed his music teacher, a nice man named Linus, who had a a very unfortunate fate. That, too, existed mostly in pottery depictions, including, apparently, one where Heracles is literally swinging part of a stool at his teacher. I read this in a book without pictures, unfortunately. (laughs) So maybe this, you know, wasn't necessarily part of his story beyond artwork. In the case of the poor dead music teacher Linus, there's there's more evidence that it was like a pre-existing story. It actually appears on a few different pieces of art. And art is often overlooked as a way that we have learned Greek mythological stories, but it's actually an enormous source for so much of what we have had to interpret because text is lost. Because still, at least until Pseudo-Apollodorus, it does not survive in any text form. Fortunately, though, you know, we still care about what Apollodorus had to say about Heracles, because if we didn't, we would be left with like a hell of a lot less detail and far more boring surviving textual sources, because Apollodorus, while brief, gives us the deets. He tells us that Heracles learned a whole host of skills as a child, as one would expect of a hero like him. His adoptive father, Amphitryon, taught him how to drive a chariot. A guy named Autilicus, who we will hear from again in Heracles' wider story, taught him to wrestle. And remember, wrestling in ancient Greece is a seriously impressive and important skill. They did invent the Olympics, after all. They absolutely loved a good naked wrestling sesh between bros. So Autilicus taught him wrestling, and a man named Eurytus taught him to shoot a bow. Famous caster of Troy, Apollodorus says taught him swordsmanship. But no, don't think too hard about that one because Castor absolutely without question should have been born well after Heracles. (laughs) And then there was Linus. Linus who taught Heracles music and was even the brother of the one and only Orpheus, according to Apollodorus, which again, don't think too hard about that because there is no question that in this section, Apollodorus is really hyping up the importance of the people associated with Heracles' childhood, his learning, and his training. What little of mythological chronology that we can define is it's just being tossed right out of the window with this list. Still, Orpheus' relation aside, Apollodorus tells us that Linus traveled to Thebes to teach young Heracles musical skills, but that he made the mistake of, of hitting Heracles during one of his lessons. I get the sense that Heracles didn't uh, find himself to be particularly musically inclined, but he did, however, find himself unable to control his temper like the good, strong, masculine man that he was. 
And so when Linus hit him, well, he flew into a rage and smashed a chair over the man's head, killing him. Flying into a rage and killing people is going to become a, a theme in Heracles' life. Because toxic masculinity looked about the same in the ancient world as it does now. Heracles was very nearly punished for, you know, straight up murdering a guy. But Apollodorus says that when he was on trial, he quoted a law of the underworld judge Radamanthus that basically meant that because Heracles saw it as self-defense, it wasn't murder. This is almost certainly like an invention, again, of this later time, like more of a means of introducing a concept that existed by the time this was being written, you know, well into the Roman period. But it's interesting all the same, because if it was, you know, based in an older mythology, I imagine it would have been the usual post-accidental murder plot point. You just have to seek some purification from another kingdom and all is forgiven. But that in itself, you know, that it isn't handled that way is this fascinating extra detail that gives some insight into the time period of the sourcing and, and what might have influenced it. And yet it's kind of all we have when it comes to any kind of detail about this part of Heracles' life. And something similar is happening in what Apollodorus tells us next. That while Heracles was still young, he was only 18, he slew a lion on Mount Kitharon outside of Thebes, which had been you know, terrorizing the region along with the nearby city of Thespia. It's only Apollodorus that adds in this lion because it's not the Nimean lion that Heracles is so famous for. And yet Apollodorus uses this story to account for Heracles' famous lion skin hood. It's a kind of like almost retconning of the story, like a reason for him to have these iconic clothes before he ever gets to his labors. But it's also just a great example of this fact that like everything is so fragmentary other than this really long-standing tradition of iconography, of art depicting Heracles, because in that case, he's always wearing that damn lion skin, and Apollodorus is accounting for that. And then there's the things <laughs> that Heracles did in Thespia, <laughs> according to Pseudo-Apollodorus. Picture that side-eye emoji here, would you? Yeah, Thespia. Phew, the things these late sources say about what went down in Thespia. See, around the time that Heracles was said to have defeated this lion, he also visited a king named Thespius. He will become the mythological founder of the region of Thespia. And, well, he was said to have had 50 daughters. H have you heard this one before? Yeah, so Heracles was said to have visited Thespius, and, well, honestly, this bit, uh, it just needs to be read as a direct quote. It's hard to do it justice. This is how Apollodorus tells us Heracles' visit with Thespius went down. Quote, The king entertained him for fifty days, and each night, as Hercules went forth to the hunt, Thespius bedded one of his daughters with him. Fifty daughters having been born to him by Megamede, daughter of Arnaeus, for he was anxious that all of them should have children by Hercules. Yeah, fifty knights, fifty daughters. Iconic Heracles action right there. In more ways than one. But if you think that's wild, wait until you hear how the other late sources describe it. According to Herodoros, whose work doesn't survive, but he was referenced a lot by Plutarch, Heracles had sex with all 50 of the daughters of Thespius, not over 50 days, but just seven. So yeah, like imagine how that might have gone down. Or better yet, Pausanias says that actually it was only 49 daughters, but that he did them all in a single fucking night. Pun not intended, but absolutely kept in after the fact. Pausanias also explains that he only had sex with 49 of them because one of them didn't want to. And of course that wouldn't stand, so she was punished by being made a priestess who would remain a virgin. That gross and sad detail aside, what this account does uh, do is suggest that at least mythologically the other 49 were into it. Small wins. By almost all accounts, though, the end result is clear. 
49 or 50 new babies by Heracles. But, well, it's important to remember that almost every reference to this comes from very, very late in the grand scheme of Heracles. So let's dive a bit deeper into what that means and why it matters. Now, full disclosure, this work by Herodoros, which I will mention again later, would have been written earlier than the others, somewhere around the 400s BCE. So, you know, earlier. But this note about the daughters of Thespius is referenced in Plutarch, who is referencing Herodoros, but who is, of course, writing very late and during the Roman period. So it's, it's tough to say whether this 50 daughters storyline existed in the earlier, more ancient Greek versions of his story or whether it is this later invention to tie him to the region, something that came along closer to the Roman period. That's a major through line when it comes to Heracles' mythology. You know, he, he traveled the Greek world and he fathered a lot of babies. Usually it seems fairly consensual, too. Because it's not really about him or the mother. It is about the procreation and the spreading of his, yeah, I'm going to say it, his Heraclean seed, you know, all around the Greek world. Just tying all these places to, you know, the Greek hero. Because, of course, when it comes to these 50 or, or 49 daughters, making babies is the key to this story as was aligning this mythological king with the founding of the region of Thespia. It's a very intentional story. And, and Thespia is an often overlooked area. You might remember they were actually one of the major forgotten police of the Battle of Thermopylae. They were there too, Sparta. Now, I realize so far this episode has been, you know, very narratively frustrating because Heracles, his childhood and his youth specifically, but honestly, all of him is, well, narratively frustrating. But that only makes him and this cultural history surrounding him more worthy of our study. Like, trying to sort through the historical timeline for Heracles' life, it only made me more keen to devoting this episode to the broader context of him. The, the concept of Heracles as a, as a cultural icon rather than a fictional character. The centuries that his story spanned and what they looked like throughout that time period, he is uniquely perfect for this kind of episode examining this concept. One that looks at the cultural history of the mythology rather than just the stories as they exist. Because like I said, basically all that I've told you about, you know, his younger years does not survive in any text form prior to, say, the first century CE, maybe a bit earlier. We're talking a good seven or eight hundred years minimum after the stories of Heracles were probably first being told. And they could have been even older. So what what's happening in sources like these is either they're working off of lost text sourcing or just this broad cultural knowledge, which is likely the case for the music teacher bit, you know, maybe even being trained by Chiron too, since both of these stories have survived in depictions and art and pottery, you know, as far back as the 6th century BCE. Or these authors are working off of newer traditions that were developed or even just changed and adjusted over those intervening seven or so hundred years. And that, that's what interests me, and I'm forcing it to interest you. But it's also one of the most important aspects of studying Heracles. Like, not only was he the most famous mythological hero from as far back as Homer, i.e., you know, as far back as we possess today, but he remained that way. And the stories that surround him are evidence of that long-lasting importance in the broader ancient Mediterranean world. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The fragmentary nature of Heracles' stories and sources is, yes, I know, frustrating uh, because maybe you're just screaming at me to tell a story, damn it. It's also an incredible example of how much of Heracles' story as we know it now was not necessarily ever written down in any detail prior to the later sources, or at least does not survive in any detail. Not because it wasn't a popular story or didn't exist at all, but simply because I think, I mean, he was so popular, so important that his stories were just broadly known across the ancient Greek world. It's certainly possible that when it comes to certain aspects of his story, written sources never existed because something like that wasn't necessary when your entire culture broadly knows the stories and tells them to each other, passes them down to their children, depicts them in art. If that's the case, you know, why bother recording it in any kind of major written source? But with that said, there are cases of lost or fragmentary sources that we do know existed. We just don't necessarily know what details they included, what depths they might have gone into, or what aspects of his many, many, many stories they might have covered. Like, there was an epic called Heraclea, essentially the deeds of Heracles, by a man named Pisandros of Rhodes, which it would have been written somewhere around the beginning of the 7th century BCE, so very old. Just like those references we have of him in Homer and Hesiod, though in that case, It was devoted to the hero completely. 
apparently, from what we know, it, it might have focused more on some of Heracles' more obscure stories, at least those that are obscure to us now, rather than his labors, which are the most popular to us now, but n- might not have been in the ancient world. Aristotle, though, he was not a fan, but his complaints were more about the plot. Just because it's about one person does not a unified plot make, was essentially his argument. We know of other works that existed too, one by Pherakides from the 5th century BCE, another by the very appropriately named Herodoros from Heraclea that I mentioned earlier, which was seriously long. But what we don't know is what they actually talked about. And and if they covered certain aspects of his life and stories, like what those details might have actually been. By the time we do have surviving sources, the stories of Heracles would have been going around the entirety of the Greek world and far beyond for, like I said, nearly a millennia. So we get these people like Pseudo Apollodorus, who gives us a straightforward and infinitely helpful account of his story. The other major surviving source, again from this later Imperial Roman time period, is Diodorus Siculus. He wasn't writing myth like Apollodorus, though. Instead, he was, like, mythologizing history, or maybe historifying mythology is a better way of saying it. He was writing myths as though they were history. He is where we get some fascinating accounts of Medea and her family, which I've talked about in the past. Diodorus Siculus summarizes, well, Heracles, generally, but also, like, definitely this episode of the podcast, when he said, quote, For it is generally agreed that this man has come down to us having surpassed in the greatness of the deeds he accomplished all those handed down in memory from antiquity. So it is difficult to report each of his exploits in a worthy manner and to make the account equal to such deeds, the greatness of which won him the prize of immortality. See, it isn't just me. Like, even in the ancient world itself, Authors like Diodorus Siculus recognize the difficulty in writing about a character like Heracles. His story served a very different purpose than the other heroes. Perseus is probably the closest to Heracles we have in in terms of his cultural relevance, and yet he doesn't come remotely close to Heracles in, in terms of stories or his general importance in the broader cultural history of the whole region. Perseus had set things that he needed to do. His story is is pretty cut and dry with a few exceptions. But even those exceptions, the, you know, the additional details that might have been tossed in later, do not come close to how widespread and deeply convoluted the stories of Heracles are because of how widespread and important they were. He he did too many things, Heracles. He he meant too much to the Greek world. For him to ever be appropriately summarized. And yeah, sometimes the things he did were great and impressive and aided a whole region, like defeating the Nimian lion or the Hydra. And sometimes, well, like sometimes he hung out in the East and played around with his gender identity, swapping clothes with the queen for a while. Or, you know, sometimes he had sex with 50 women in a single night so that they could have his 50 babies. He contained multitudes. (laughs) Remember in the old days of the podcast where I would just tell you the simplest version of a myth? Do you miss those days? Yeah, me neither. There's nothing wrong with reading myths in that way, like in finding a chronologically and narratively satisfying take on the story and just like going with that. Nothing wrong with that. Back then, I had a book of myths written by a scholar that just succinctly retold the stories, you know, as if they existed in this way in the sources. That's the main source that I worked with back then. Now, though, like my own knowledge base has grown so much that I absolutely love being able to tell you more about the cultural context, like the how and the why, and obviously all the many varied versions. But I really think it's so important because unless you have access to this type of background, you really just come at it thinking like, hey, here's the story of Heracles. He did all these labors. He did all these things. It's just cut and dry in the sources. And oh, my God, it's not. He's one of these characters that is both uniquely prolific in terms of versions, stories, 
everything and anything. The most prolific. It's annoying. But because he is all of those things, he's also one of the most confusing in that deeply satisfying kind of way. The stories of his labors, for instance, is, is often presented as one of the most straightforward aspects of his story. And yet, even there, there's just so much nuance. From as far back as the Iliad, we know that Heracles was the original Greek hero. He's mentioned in that epic often as a kind of predecessor to all the great heroes at Troy, many of whom claim to be descendants or relations of his in some way, because that made them even more impressive. But of course, his story was never straightforward, because if it were, it simply wouldn't be Greek myth at all. In the Iliad, while we know he was you know, major and important as shit, only one of his famous labors is ever mentioned. The time he traveled to the underworld to steal Cerberus. Hesiod, meanwhile, the, the other source we go for for the earliest surviving aspects of myth, puts equal importance in Heracles. He's mentioned among other places in the Theogony, that oldest text that we have for the stories of the gods, you know, beyond the war. There, more of his famous labors are mentioned, stealing the cattle of Geryon, defeating the Hydra and the Nemean lion. There's also, beyond his labors, mention of his interactions with the Hesperides and Atlas and Cerberus, but without the link to his labors. There's a list of all of the references to his labors in this companion book I've been using. You remember, it's the reason we returned to Heracles, because I'm determined to get my money's worth. But it lists many other sources throughout the history of Greek myth, which, you know, over centuries detail bits and pieces of his labors. As far as we know from surviving bits and pieces, the, the first reference we have to all 12 of his famous labors isn't even in a text source, but it's depicted on the Temple of Zeus at Olympia. There we have all the labors referenced together in one place, though they're not even in the order that we see them in later text sources. There are other slightly later references to more of his labors, though again, they differ from the canonical 12 that we will come to know. Like in the Euripides play Heracles, there are 12 things that he is said to have done, but they aren't all part of the generally accepted list of 12 labors. It isn't until the Hellenistic period, a good five or so hundred years after sources like Homer and Hesiod, where we get the established canon 12 labors. And it isn't until the first century BC that a text source survives that actually retells the stories of the labors rather than just listing the deeds themselves. Just take that in. I think it's incredibly important in terms of understanding not only the mythology of the most famous Greek hero, but also just this good reminder about how mythology functioned in the ancient world compared to how it's often portrayed to us now. I know this is my favorite topic to harp on, but it is that for a reason. We think of Heracles as this hero whose story is ancient as everyone else, who did these very specific things that are so deeply tied to the fabric of Greek myth, you know, the 12 labors. They're iconic, arguably some of the most iconic pieces from traditionally Greek myth that we think of today. And yet it's nearly a millennia of Greek mythological sources before some survive that have actual stories of all of those labors. Instead, we work off the bits and pieces, the little references here and there, both in art and text. That hint at, at all the things that he was thought to have done. And I don't want you to think that this means that the 12 labors as we know them were established as late as the Hellenistic period. Instead, it's this reminder that the purpose of Greek myth in the ancient world was not to be written down. It wasn't fiction as we know it. It wasn't meant to be read and understood in that form. Instead, particularly for heroes like Heracles, Perseus being maybe the only other example that comes close to Heracles, the thing to take away is that these stories were just, by and large, known. The everyday people of the ancient Greek world just knew Heracles. They might not have known all of his deeds, all of his stories, but they would have known at least a handful. They would have been able to recognize them in art, on pottery, on temples. You could just look at something and know that's Heracles. 
And he was everywhere. In terms of surviving pottery that we have today, Heracles and the Amazons are the most commonly depicted subjects. So much of what we know about him is from iconography. And the Temple of Zeus at Olympia is the best example of this. It dates to the 5th century BCE. So it's it's fairly old, but definitely, you know, young in the grand scheme of myth. A good few hundred years later than Homer or Hesiod's work. And that it was at Olympia, that's the key. Olympia wasn't just any old Greek city-state. It wasn't some local reference being made there. You know, a temple where only people of the neighboring regions would have visited. Unlike, you know, probably most other temples in the ancient Greek world, this particular temple was meant to be viewed by everyone. Olympia was, unsurprisingly, where the ancient Olympics took place. So unlike most other regions, say for like maybe Delphi or something, it was a kind of like global city in the sense that the globe was like just the ancient Greek polis. So everyone... And by everyone, I mean primarily men, because ladies were not even allowed to watch the Olympics. Don't be crazy. Everyone would have visited this temple. They would have looked up at those metopes, the the art carved above the columns, and they would have been able to immediately recognize the labors of Heracles. A lot of these pieces are in the Louvre, and I didn't know that. I was in the Louvre last year, I guess. And I literally just looked at the thing and I was like, that's Heracles. Like, that is that is what these people would have been able to see. You see a guy doing certain specific things and you immediately know that it's Heracles. That's something to remember, even when we're considering the lost works that we do know existed. Like, sure, there were certainly a couple of ancient epics about Heracles, and they likely had loads of details that we will never know about. But the readership, or even the audience more broadly, for something like that, probably wouldn't remotely have compared to the stories of him that were just floating around the people even just you know existing in ancient Greece people would have seen Heracles on every other piece of pottery on temples far beyond the one in Olympia literally he was everywhere so it almost just doesn't matter what the actual details of his story were You don't need to know the nitty gritty of how he defeated the Hydra, just that he did it. And because of him, you're not liable to run into a multi-headed serpent monster. We think of these things as stories today, as narratives with plots and details, character arcs and growth. But those things just did not matter in the same way in the ancient world. I'm not saying they weren't appreciated or utilized, but they were not even close to the most important part of a character like Heracles. Heracles was important because he was Heracles, because across the ancient Greek world, everyone could name at least one great thing that he did, at least one impressive child that he fathered, probably even one weird ass thing that he was involved in, because everyone loves a bit of weird. I know this kind of thing is, is just so in the weeds. It's sticky and weird and obviously fragmentary as shit and and difficult for me as one person telling you things to convey in an entertaining way. But when it comes to to Heracles, it's just so important to consider him as the cultural icon that he was, rather than a guy who did some labors which made it into some stories later. He was just larger than life for people of the ancient world. And whether or not you'd heard a poet sing about him or read something somewhere, you would have heard about Heracles. You would know the things that he did. It seems to me like he would be a kind of people's hero in that way. You didn't have to be able to read or have access to a more wealthy form of entertainment. He he was iconic enough and widespread enough across the Greek world that even the poorest people would know about him. Even the enslaved people would know about him. Because, yeah, there's even stories of him having been enslaved for a time. So he really just would have appealed to everyone, no matter who they were or what lives they led in the ancient world. Frankly, I don't get enough chances to talk about that kind of impact, the way everyday people would have interacted with somebody like Heracles. But it is so important to remember that for all we think of Greek myth today as these fun and entertaining stories, 
It was a culture. It was everyday life. It was something to aspire to, to hold on to for very real people of all walks of life and wealth and lack thereof. Just real people in the ancient world. Uh, nerds thank you for indulging me in this episode now i fully set out to have this be like a regular storytelling episode but the more i started researching even just like his childhood the more i realized that i actually just wanted to talk about heracles as this cultural concept more than a character in stories it applies to many people from myth but i do think he stands out completely like he is unique in the way that he would have appealed to everyone in his own way and the way his achievements were so broadly celebrated. It just he the made him a piece of ancient culture in this very real and visceral way. There's a reason he had so many varied stories all around the Greek world and of varying types, levels of so-called heroism. All of these things were meant to just make him appeal to like everyone. But before I leave Heracles for today, I have to tell you that I found out a little detail about his childhood that I didn't see in time to put into last week's episode, but, but it simply must be shared. See, it seems there's, a, there's an alternate version to the whole baby Heracles strangling snakes sent by Hera story. Apparently, Pherakides said that it was actually Amphitryon, Heracles' adoptive dad, who put the snakes into his crib rather than Hera. And it wasn't in any kind of show of, like, jealousy or anger or, like, intent to harm. It, instead, it was... See, Alcmene had given birth to the two kids, and Amphitryon knew that one was his and the other was Zeus. And apparently this moment with the snakes was actually just an attempt at figuring out which baby had which father... So he like dropped some snakes in on the children. And when Heracles' brother, Iphicles, ran away in fear <laughs> and Heracles stood his ground, Amphitryon was able to know once and for all which son was his biologically and, and which was Zeus's. And if that isn't uh, the funniest case of awful fucking parenting in the ancient world, I don't know what is. Man, I can talk a lot. Um, I swear, every script these days is at least a thousand words longer than the ones that I did even like a year or two ago. I can't help myself. But as always, let's end with a five-star review from one of you wonderful listeners. Thank you to everyone who reviews on Apple. Like, it really honestly means the world. And thank you to those of you on Spotify who are playing around with this new Q&A feature and polls and whatever. They're really fun. So I'm thrilled that you're enjoying them too. Uh, this review comes from Lauren M. 8 in Great Britain. Best podcast. Great show and a wonderful host. This has both convinced and helped me study Latin and the ancient world. I hope this show goes on for a very long time so I can continue listening. My favorites are the plays. Thank you, Lauren. Though I'm a little offended that you took up Latin and not Greek. It's fine. I fucking love the plays too. So thank you. And gods, we still have so many of those to cover. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, better known as the assistant producer. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all. You're so nerdy and cool. We do have fun. I am Liv and I love this shit. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. 
It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.